listening to the Sojourn Montrose Sermon Podcast. To get connected at Sojourn Montrose, visit our website, sojournmontrose.org. Uh, well, good morning. Peace be with you. Uh, my name is Cole. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, it's really good to be with you this morning as we continue walking through the, na- the narrative of Abraham in Genesis. Um, one of the things about this passage that I love is that we get this beautiful picture of grace and fellowship with God uh, in the midst of a world marked by brokenness and, and bloodshed and all sorts of, of bad situations. And, and I know that, that many in the room probably enter into our Sunday gathering this morning having felt the weight of living in a broken world. Um, and, and yet, God gives us this opportunity weekly to come and have fellowship with Him and one another to experience the joy of His grace and, and the, the people that He's invited us into. And, and so, I, I just don't want that to be missed on us as we spend time together um, every week, that God is he's giving us reprieve weekly um, to experience His grace through fellowship. Um, before we jump into this text where where we see just tons of beautiful things. Let's pray for our time together. Father, we, we come to you this morning and we ask that you would, in the abundance of your mercy and in the power of your spirit, speak to us in your word. Would you transform us according to your grace? I pray this morning that we would be able to consider those things that we deeply desire, those things that we want you to do that, that we're, we're almost afraid to ask you for, um, or we ask with, with a, a, a sense that, that you couldn't provide it, that you wouldn't do that for us, I pray that you would allow us in this text to see your power and your love, your desire for restoration and redemption, and I pray that ultimately that would point us to the beauty of your son, that we would marvel at him that we would take refuge in him, and that we would see him as the confluence of all of our hopes, all of our needs met in you through your son. It's in his name that we pray this morning. Amen. So Genesis 18, uh, 1 through 15, it's a really, really beautiful passage, and to understand it, uh, we're going to need to start by doing some contextual work um, to be able to see the pastoral beauty in the text. Uh, we, we need to look at this passage within the context of the life of Abraham. Um, and, and then zooming out, we need to look at the passage within the context of the, the book of Genesis and really the first five books of the Bible, the Torah in general, to see how this text fits into kind of the themes and movements of what's going on there. And then we need to consider this text within the context of the history of redemption that ultimately finds its fulfillment in, in Jesus. Genesis 18, verses 1 through 15, it's a passage of rest sandwiched between major events that, that were not restful and, and that involved the shedding of blood. And so the passage before, if you remember last week, God cuts a covenant with Abraham, the covenant of circumcision. And so there's bloodshed, right? And, and it's it's a beautiful moment of God making a promise to his people, of sealing his people in, in his promises, but, but it is marked by 
by bloodshed. It's the blood of cleansing and blessing, the removal of sin, the mark of holiness and favor with God. And in the chapter that follows this, we're going to see bloodshed through God's destruction in judgment of the wicked as Sodom will be destroyed in the wrath of God. And so Genesis 18 is a bridge passage. It's meant to provide us with relief, with context. It gives us a lens for better understanding that which preceded it and that which proceeds from it. But just as importantly as this small contextual moment is is that everything in Genesis and in the life of Abraham sits in the wake of and in the shadow of the garden narrative which begins Genesis and begins human history. So Abraham is presented to us as a new Adam who will father a multiplying family that will bless the nations of the earth. Like Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden who rested on high ground above the earth in the shade of the tree of life enjoying fellowship with God, so Abraham and Sarah live on high ground in Canaan, shaded under the oaks of Mamre, experiencing fellowship with God. Abraham is also presented to us as a new Noah, whose family will emerge through God's judgment, which is to come a chapter later, as God cleanses the the region of sin and wickedness. And God, through Abraham, will establish a people who will never be removed from the face of the earth. Noah, if you remember, Noah emerged from the flood, and he built a tent. And when he built that tent, he became like Adam in his sin. Noah's nakedness was shamefully uncovered. But Abraham's tent in Genesis 18 is not like Noah's tent. It's instead a place of refuge and peace. We'll see it become a tabernacle of worship and praise to God, where priestly things are happening within Abraham's tent. And finally, Abraham and Sarah and this is the most important thing, are the people through whom the promised seed from Genesis 3 will come. And so if you remember the garden narrative, Adam and Eve sin, and God speaks to Eve, and he curses her, but he also gives her a promise, a promise that from her will come a seed of a woman. One of her daughters will bear a son who will crush the serpent's head, who will restore humanity to fellowship with God in a garden world, and All of the curse of sin will be removed by this offspring. And Abraham and Sarah are the family through whom that seed will come. The serpent crusher will come from Abraham and Sarah. The one who will restore the nations to fellowship with God. And so with those things in mind, let's start reading the first couple verses of this chapter. It says, And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes And looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth. So this text is echoing Genesis 12 when Abraham and Sarah were Abram and Sarai and God called them out of Babylon and they came into Canaan. And when they got there, Abraham built an altar by the oaks of Moreh, which means the oaks of seeing and God appeared to them there and made the promise that they would have a son, that they would have offspring. And so this is reminding us of that moment. 
And now, later in the life of Abraham and in the history of redemption, where God has now not only given a promise, but he's made covenant with Abraham and his family. He's cut that covenant into Abraham's flesh. And now Abraham is once again resting under the oaks now of Mamre, and God appears to him again. It says he appears to him in the heat of the day, which sounds a lot like the cool of the day where Adam and God walked in the garden together. Shaded by the tree of life, and now Abraham is meeting God in the heat of the day, shaded by the oaks of Mamre. It says Abraham lifted his eyes, looked, and beheld as God became seeable to him. Abraham's camp is reminding us of Eden. And his reception of these three men, one of whom is God in the flesh, is marked by honor and love and a clear sense of friendship. And so as we just have two verses of this passage, we should be expecting blessing. We should be expecting hope. We should be expecting rest. If you're a a fan of the Lord of the Rings, this passage is like a a Rivendell passage. And and now there's there's a few things in this text where Commentators really disagree on on what we should assume. And one of them is whether or not Abraham recognizes these three men as being heavenly. Uh, Because we're revealed that two are angels and one is Yahweh himself. And some commentators think that, that there was kind of a disguise. And God revealed himself through the conversation rather than through his visible attributes. Um, and some believe that Abraham knew from the outset who he was greeting. Um, I don't think that it's appropriate to make a hardline stance on this because it's not obvious in the text. But I am at least of the opinion that Abraham knew who these men were. And I think that is true based on the imagery in the text, based on the language of the text, based on Abraham's response to these visitors. Um, the radical hospitality he shows, the fact that he meets these men in the light of the day, under the shade of the tree, and there's three times that his seeing is emphasized. He lifted his eyes and looked and beheld, and God was made seeable. I think all of this is showing us that Abraham knew, but even if not, what we'll see is later God's going to reveal himself so clearly that it can't be denied. But the passage goes on, And we'll see Abraham serve the Lord lavishly. It says, And Abraham said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, Do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, Quick, three measures of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. There is urgency and radical generosity in the hospitality that Abraham is showing here. I want you to note that the whole household is taken up in following the lead of Abraham, in learning what it means to serve the Lord when he's in their presence. This is something that if you're a husband or a father in the room, you should be learning. Abraham's excitement, his zeal, his clear friendship with God, and his leadership build up his house not only to a family 
and not only into a working organism, but into a priesthood. The language of preparation here for this feast reminds us of the language that will come later in the book of Leviticus when the priests are told how they should prepare the offerings for tabernacle worship. So Abraham's house is not only preparing a meal, they are preparing offerings of thanksgiving to God who has come to dwell with them. And this is really beautiful also for us to learn as the church and for our neighborhood parishes and even for our dining room home, in in our homes. God has made us a kingdom of priests who, when we offer ourselves to the Lord as a living sacrifice, as Paul says, can bear fruit that's pleasing to God. And so what if we started thinking about our hospitality that we show to others, not only as generosity, not only as something that is good to do, but as real service to the Lord? What if we viewed people coming to sit at our table as if it were God coming to sit at our table? And that may sound ridiculous because people aren't God, but Jesus himself says when he returns, he will commend his followers for how they treat the least of these, the lowly ones, in their hospitality. I was naked and you gave me clothes. I was hungry and you fed me. And so our service to others in hospitality is service to the Lord. It is sanctified by Christ that it becomes beautiful and good. And so Abraham's hospitality is partially possible because of his great wealth, right? He's preparing a meal that could feed probably like a hundred people. Most of us don't have enough groceries in our home that if somebody shows up, we're going to prepare a meal like that. But we can follow his lead in a lifestyle of hospitality to invite people to sit under the shade of the covenant love of God and enjoy the sort of blessings of belonging in his kingdom, even if they have yet to or, have, or never will fully take hold of Christ by faith that we can show this sort of hospitality is a beacon of the love that God has shown to us. I want us to take a moment to look at the elements of the feast. The first thing that Abraham does is he goes into the tent and he speaks to his wife and he says to take three measures of flour and knead it and make cakes. This is a lot of flour. This is likely enough to feed like 70 to 100 people with bread. And remember, they have three visitors Right, so this is lavish hospitality, but it also points to the fact that, that Abraham is having them prepare a feast on the occasion of these guests arriving, but that the whole household is going to feast, that it's not just for these guests. Then Abraham goes and picks out an animal for the feast. He does this himself. He doesn't, he doesn't give that job to another. He finds an animal that is tender and good, and this, too like so much already in the passage, is a reversal of the things that happened in Eden. The language of tender and good in the Hebrew sound remarkably similar to the knowledge of good and bad. Good and tender sound like good and bad, but here where Adam and Eve sinned by taking the fruit of the knowledge of the good and bad which they were forbidden from eating, now in a reversal of what happens in that cursed act, Abraham greets God into his garden with hospitality, serving only that which is good and soft. And if Abraham could do that in his age, how much more can we experience that sort of hospitality and fellowship with the Lord in the age in which Christ has already reversed the curse? where he has lifted the curse of Adam and Eve through his 
passion. I noted earlier there's a lot more food than is necessary. And it's a sign of God's great care, of Abraham's great care and love for God. But practically, it would mean that that everyone in the household is going to get to eat. And so when God shows up, everyone feasts. And this is another biblical theme that you see throughout the scriptures where the fellowship of God in reconciled relationship with God, in covenant union with God, means that those who are lowly and those who are destitute and those who are less than in society, like for instance, servants and slaves in a household, are invited to feast at the table of Yahweh. And so Abraham is imaging that. And I want you to hold on to the amount of flour that Sarah used. It's going to be important for us later. She uses three measures of flour. The text goes on. It says, they said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? So the angels speak to Abraham. They say, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she is in the tent. And now Yahweh speaks. And he says, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure. I, I love everything about this interaction. The, the imagery of it, the table is prepared. God is feasting in the presence of his friend Abraham who is standing at the ready to serve him. And now God begins to speak and he speaks a reminder of the covenant promises he's already given. And if I was wrong to assume that Abraham knew who these visitors were before, there was no doubt at the moment the angels asked where Sarah was. Because if strangers had come into Abraham's house, home and they asked where his wife was, they, one, probably wouldn't have known his wife's name. And they would have said, where is your wife? But if they knew her name, they would have known her old name. They would have asked where Sarai was. But God, in the chapter previous, had given Sarai a new name, Sarah, which means princess. And so God has come into the home of Abraham, and he's calling his children by the names he has given them. And he inquires about his princess. God is checking on his princess because he is about to bring nations from her. God is checking on this woman who is 90 years old, weathered from a life of moving from place to place, tired from promises yet to be fulfilled, ashamed of some of the ways that she has acted in order to achieve the promises of God on her own, lacking the glory of motherhood, which she surely thought in her youth would be her crown. And now God has given her a new crown, calling her princess. And this is the tender love of God, that God would look upon a 90-year-old barren woman and say, this is my princess. And then he, he speaks of her, and he says that this time next year she will have a son. Sarah hears this, and like her husband, the chapter before, she laughs. She laughs. And now there's a debate about what exactly is meant by this laughter. What, was Sarah scoffing at God? Was it total disbelief? Was it the laughter that comes from hopeful Doubt? What, what kind of laughter was it? Was she a hopeful skeptic? Was she a genuine doubter? Was she an altogether hard-hearted unbeliever? 
We don't know. We don't know what was in Sarah's laughter. I, I think any of those would make sense. But what's more important for us is that we understand what Sarah represents in the book of Genesis. Sarah is the archetypal daughter of Eve. Eve was blessed with the promise of a future conqueror that would come from one of her daughter's seed, but she was also cursed in her sin. And the primary nature of the curse that God gave her is that he would multiply her pain in bearing children, which doesn't only mean that the act of childbirth would be painful, but that conceiving children would be difficult. Right? There was never a design for infertility or miscarriage, and so now Sarah is a woman totally barren. She's 90 years old, she's postmenopausal, so already she can't conceive, but even when she was in the age of fertility, she couldn't conceive, and yet she's the one that God's been making these promises to, that she'll have this son of promise. And so she is Eve post-garden defined, right? This woman who is overwhelmed by the curse of Eve, and yet bearing the promise of Eve, and she's confused and conflicted. A princess of God, yet unable to bear fruit in her womb. Imagine how much Sarah would give for things to have been easier in her life, for the curse not to have been upon her. She could have had children in her early womanhood, she could have enjoyed the pleasure of being a mother and being known as a mother among friends and in the eyes of strangers. Instead, she is living 90 years barren. And now God is promising her that she will bear a son and she laughs because she, what she has heard from the mouth of God is absurd. It's fantastical. It's beyond gracious. She's heard it from her husband, who God has already told, but now she's hearing it directly from the mouth of God and she laughs. I mean, who is this God who keeps saying stuff like this? Who's this God who comes to me and, and almost mocks me by calling me princess and gets my hopes up with these things that are totally impossible? Who is this God? I mean, imagine hearing the deepest longing of your heart that seems so impossible to gain is being promised by the very mouth of God. I think you would laugh too. She asks, shall I have pleasure now, this is where lean in because you're, this is going to get really good. The Hebrew noun for pleasure is pronounced aden, which is the same word that when turned into a proper noun becomes the name of the garden in Genesis chapter 2. Sarah, a woman cursed because of the sins committed in Eden, is saying, shall I have it? Shall I have Eden? Shall I have fellowship with God in his garden? Shall the curse be removed from my body? Shall all of the weight of sin and death that has been so clearly upon my life, shall it be removed? Now, it's not clear that Sarah understood fully what she was saying. She, she could have just said in this moment of, of an emotional response, the word that means pleasure. But... As the Holy Spirit sovereignly ordained the things that are inscripturated, God intended for that to be a packed word. He intended for that to be a packed word because Sarah, in this moment, is expressing that which is at the core of the human heart. 
Shall I, who am burdened by living in a broken world marked by sin, shall I, who have made more mistakes than I would care to admit, shall I, who have experienced pain and sorrow all my days, shall I, who have no worth on my own, shall I, who nobody loves as I would want them to, shall I have the things that God gave to Adam and Eve in the garden? Shall I have fellowship with him? Shall I walk with him in the cool of the day? Shall I no longer be ashamed and exposed? It's absurd to imagine these things. It's absurd to imagine these things. That God would call us his friends. That he would lavish upon us his love and mercy. That he would visit us and have fellowship with us. That he would heal us of the blindness of our hearts so that we can see him in the light of the day. That he would use us for good in his kingdom. How can this be? How can it be that we could live forever though death seems so close? How can it be that we could reign as princes and princesses in his kingdom though we are lowly and worthless? How can it be that we could be called sons of God when we've been his enemies? That we could one day live in a world with no more curses, no more sadness, no more sick or sickness or chaos or conflict, no more funerals? How could that be that that my family, regardless of its past or its present, could be part of the story of God's redemption? Shall we have the blessings of Eden? Shall we live in the garden of pleasure with God? Don't listen to me. Let's listen to the mouth of God himself. It says, the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you. About this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, no, but you did laugh. Brothers and sisters, is anything too hard for the Lord? No. No. Some of the things that we want when we think of redemption and restoration and healing, are things that we might not get in this life. That's true. Things that we aren't promised. But far be it from us to put those things past God and outside of the realm of his power and outside of the character of his love and mercy and delight in us. So that addiction or sin struggle that you just can't get freedom from, is anything too hard for the Lord, brother? Your poor mental health that plagues you with sorrow and anxiety and fear and apathy and loneliness, is anything too hard for the Lord, sister? That relationship that you feel is so past broken that you're tempted to give up on it altogether, is anything too hard for the Lord? That cancer that's in your blood that's spreading faster than you would like it to, is anything too hard for the Lord? See, Sarah was cut to the quick when God called out her laughter. So much that she denied it. She was embarrassed. She felt ashamed. She wished she hadn't laughed. And I love God's gracious response to her here. It's about as gentle as a rebuke can possibly be. He just says, no, but you did laugh. He didn't dig in. He didn't accuse her further. He reminds her of her laughter because she will laugh again. 
She will laugh again. She will have a son a year from then, and she will name him Son of Laughter. And then she will laugh in unbridled joy. No more doubt, no more wondering, no more questioning if the things of Eden could be restored in her heart and in creation, because then she will laugh fully knowing that the goodness and grace of God is for her and that it is on the move in the world. As we close, I want to go back to the cakes that Sarah baked at the beginning of the feast. Abraham called her to use three measures of flour and knead it. And the word of our Lord Jesus in Matthew 13, 33 says this. It says, he told them a parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. Sarah, that day, even in her doubt, she was baking the cakes of the kingdom. Her hospitality of the Lord in her home and of the Lord's promise in her heart and eventually of the seed of promise in her womb would be part of the leavening of the kingdom of God growing and expanding. See, the kingdom of God began like leaven in a huge lump of dough, so small and imperceptible at first. And yet over time and with proper kneading, able to feed a multitude, It began with a promise to Eve, and it grew with a promise to Sarah. And then Sarah gave birth, and her son had more sons, and her son, her grandson, had even more sons. And eventually, they became this great nation, until one day, there would be another woman who was totally hopeless for childbearing, not old and tired, but a virgin. And yet her seed would produce the serpent crusher. Her seed would produce that great gardener, our Lord Jesus, who has broken the curse of sin and death through his work on the cross and in his resurrection. And so, brothers and sisters, that day when the angel came to speak to Mary, to make her a promise similar to this interaction with Sarah, all of creation was groaning at that time, laughing at the promises of God. Shall we have pleasure? Look at us, generation after generation, wickedness upon wickedness, brokenness and exile and torture and enslavement. Shall we have pleasure, brothers and sisters? Oh yes, we shall. And more than Eden, more than Eden too, we will have Eden glorified, a new heaven and a new earth and a new creation that will never be defiled by serpents or forbidden feasts. Instead, we will feast always with the Lord in the light of his glory under the shade of the tree of life and in the shadow of that cross which has been transformed into such a thing. So let us practice hospitality with pleasure in our hearts. Let us pray with expectation even for those things that before we would laugh at the prospect of God doing in our world. Let let us love our enemies and forgive our debtors and rest daily under the covenant promises of God until that great day comes when all things are made new. The thing about Sarah's laughter is some of the things that we have been given now in Christ If Sarah had been told about them, she would have laughed harder. The things Sarah couldn't even entertain as believable have happened. Sins are forgiven 
Death is put to shame. A virgin has brought forth a promised son, and all who cling to that son will have table fellowship with God forevermore as his friends, but more than friends, as his family, part of his royal family forever. And so, brothers and sisters, as we prepare to come to the table and as we come to the Lord in prayer, I want you to consider those things those godly and sincere desires that you have that you before maybe wouldn't imagine that God could do. Maybe it is giving you the actual faith and hope to believe that that loved one who doesn't believe would come to faith. Maybe it is um, healing from illness. Maybe it is freedom from some sort of sin struggle or mental health issue, maybe you're in the room this morning and you've wanted to believe these things that Christians proclaim, but they've just seemed too fanciful to you. So maybe, maybe our laughing of doubt will be turned into laughing of knowledge. Let's pray to the Lord expectantly.